Well, we're continuing our detailed look at the godly women of the church in 1 Timothy 2. Next week is Mother's Day. That's why we're not having evening service, so you can enjoy your family during that time. Um, But this is a unique opportunity. We're going to land on Mother's Day on um, verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. So so that's kind of a a once-in-a-lifetime thing, the planets converging there. While you're finding 1 Timothy 2, well, we actually need to back up a couple of verses to a couple that we've already covered. Our verses for today are verses 13 and 14, but we need to connect them to verses 11 and 12 because they really go together. So I'll read all four of those verses, beginning in verse 11, as we continue looking at the godly women of the church. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Many of the major attacks on particularly verses 11 and 12 have come from within the walls of the church. And there's an entire theological viewpoint that has been nicknamed egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says that the inherent roles for men and women created by God weren't created by God. They were made up by sinful men. And so they've tried to come up with some pretty sophisticated nuances for trying to reinterpret the very plain meaning of Scripture. This is a classic case of trying to read a modern cultural idea back into the Bible while using kind of smoke and mirrors to appear that you're using complex hermeneutics to arrive at a reasonable conclusion, where they're not. But then the egalitarians run into a major interpretive problem in that Paul now appeals to something far more universal than just culture or era or even geography. He goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, the truths we're examining today are really vital to be woven into the fabric of the church, woven into the fabric of the family, of the Christian life. And God has given us two major venues in which we function. It is the home and the church. And so, because this touches both of those, I'd like today to be intensely applicational. I don't want this just to be a theological discussion of a difficult issue. But first, we have to see what we have here. We have to understand the meaning of the text. And it's not an easy one. It's going to take some thought and concentration together, but I know we can do it. I've seen you do it week after week. So our organization this week is going to be very simple. We're going to do the interpretation and then the application. How about that? So first, let's interpret this passage. Let's interpret verses 13 and 14. Because it has some complexities to it. Everyone agrees that there's a clear connection between verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14. The conjunction for at the beginning of verse 13 makes this inescapable. But the crux of the debate here centers around whether verses 13 and 14, the reference to the created order and to the deception of the woman, the debate is, is this an illustration of verses 11 and 12 Or are they reasons for the command of verses 11 and 12? Now, I'm not going to go into verses 11 and 12, what it means to remain quiet and so forth. We've talked about that. It's not literally silence. It has more to do with the attitude of the heart. 
and the correct place in the church. So is it an illustration or are they actual reasons? If they're just illustrations, if verse 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14 provide a couple of illustrations, then there isn't as much of a binding quality to them. And the illustration argument breaks down pretty quickly at various places. For example, if this is just an illustration, then the logical conclusion from verse 14 would be something like, just like Eve was deceived because she is a woman, women shouldn't be teaching men in the church because they're more likely to be deceived. I don't know how anybody could preach that and think they're going to escape the church alive, to be honest with you. Now you're basically saying, well, the reason is it's an illustration that women are more gullible than men. I looked up a statistic. Guess who's more likely to be ripped off by a business scheme? Men. So we can't say that. But aside from that, the grammatical evidence that these are not illustrations but reasons, the evidence is very strong. We have to get into the weeds just a little bit here, but when you interpret Scripture, we want to be careful. We want to be precise. The conjunction for that's used here in verse 13 with a a clause following it after a command every single time in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, the pastoral epistles that kind of go together, every single time states a reason, not an illustration. Every time. For example, uh, turn over, we'll just do a few. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, and we can kind of have a little Bible drill here. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a reason. Verse 16 of the same chapter. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in doing this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's a reason. Next chapter, chapter 5, verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn first, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Reason. I'm not going to belabor the point, but I found 14 more examples. They're all reasons, not illustrations. So back to our text, the the simplest, most straightforward reading of the text gives us the most plausible understanding. These are reasons for verses 11 and 12. Now that we've established that, though, we have to understand what these reasons are because they're not necessarily easy to understand without looking at the overall context of 1 Timothy, which we'll do here in a moment. But reason number one, found in verse 13, the created order is a divine design. The created order is a divine design. The order of creation signified a substantial difference between the man and the woman, not a qualitative difference, but a functional difference. They were not created simultaneously. And contrary to liberal beliefs, Eve wasn't somehow an afterthought. That God said, oh, I, I, I knew I forgot something. He's all alone. I guess I better uh, do a little add-on here. No, this was always the plan. And think about this. All the other types of, if I can put us in this category, all the other types of creatures were created all together. All the fish at once. All the birds at once. All the land animals at once. But humanity in two stages. Making a very clear point here. 
Paul taught that men and women were equal as persons, as those created in the image of God with value and dignity, and that men and women were created, though, for differing roles, particularly to the home and to the church. By the way, just a little side note here. Um, those who disagree with the created order argument, they would say, they say this, and this is actually an argument used quite frequently. Well, if that's the case, then the animals were created first and they should be superior to Adam. Your dog should be telling you what to do because that's the created order. That's a silly argument. What's the difference between us and your dog? We're created in the image of God. So, of course, that's not going to be the case. Now, Paul could have simply said, as an apostle of Christ, I have received revelation from God that let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, period. Instead, though, he goes back to Genesis. And why does he go all the way back to Genesis? Listen carefully. This is to understand the context of 1 Timothy. He's making corrections. He's making corrections. It's been a while since we looked at this. In fact, it was last summer. But one of the heresies Timothy is dealing with as the apostolic representative of Paul at the church of Ephesus, we see it right at the beginning of the book. Look at 1 Timothy 1 verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. What is this? Certain teachers in the church were making wild speculations about what? The law of God. That is a technical term for the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Begins with Genesis. We understand this. This is happening today. Today, wild speculations are made about Genesis, about Adam in particular. There is, I don't know if you're aware of this, there's a wide swath of evangelicalism that believes that either Adam and Eve were not actual historical characters, but more metaphorical representatives of the first people, or believes that if they were real people, they weren't the first people, but rather representatives of mankind's descent into sin. Both of those views are often called the mythological view of Genesis, and it didn't come about until the last century and a half. Why did those views come about? Because it's an attempt to mesh the Bible with the theory of evolution. Because evolution and an Adam and Eve don't fit together. And Paul is correcting these myths, these speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is that? It is to take the word of God and say it and explain it. And that's it. Not to speculate about it. Paul is making this correction. And of course, Paul knew Adam to be real. You could read almost the entire chapter of Romans chapter 5 talks about Adam extensively. Jesus talks about Adam. He knew Adam to be real for an even better reason because Jesus made him. So of course he knew Adam to be real. He knows the exact spot that he took the dust of the earth and formed Adam's head and his arms and his torso. He knows all that. So you might say, well, what's the big deal? 
What's the seriousness of some in the church at Ephesus not believing the literal account of the creation and and of Adam and Eve? Here's the seriousness. Adam and Eve are the foundation of the home designed after God's divine order. They're the foundation of the home. But if Genesis 1 and 2 is mythological, then guess what? Women won't feel constrained or obligated to the divine order of the home and the family because they're listening to teachers who are now defining it out of existence. In Ephesus, the traditional roles of women were being taught as being able to be set aside. The roles of marriage and childbearing in particular. That's why we have in verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing. We'll deal with that next week. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good. In other words, one of the problems with the speculations and the myths being taught as new interpretations of the law of God was that now there's no foundation upon which to build the home. That foundation is gone. By the way, during this exact time in the Roman Empire, across the board, culturally, there was a devaluing and avoidance of pregnancy. The Roman Empire, at this time, had a huge upswing in abortion. Same thing we're experiencing today. Now, remember that Paul has just addressed women in the church who were using their apparel, their clothing in public worship services to show off both their seductive side and their wealth. This was a a move of women to show that they're now empowered beyond the traditional family roles, that they're independent, so to speak. And what's the result of these reinterpretations of Genesis 1 and 2? It is a push to reverse the roles based on culture. And so Paul reminds them of the foundation of God's order going all the way back to creation. Now, some say, and this is a viewpoint held today by many, some say that the idea of a wife submitting to her husband in marriage is a twisted idea that's a result of the curse of sin given by God, that the real ideal is egalitarian, that there's no authority structure, there's no hierarchy in the home, and that the authority structure is the result of sin. Well, Paul destroys that line of thinking. How does he do this? A couple of ways. First of all, in verse 13, he uses the specific Greek word for Adam was formed first. This is a very specific word that means to mold something. It, it doesn't mean to create an idea. It means to actually make something. And so now what Paul has done is he has pinpointed an actual moment in time. It's not a theoretical discussion about creation in general. It's actually a moment in time that if there was a, if there was a clock on the wall or a watch on your wrist, you could say, oh, look, it's such and such a time. This is Adam being created right now. That's the first way he destroys that argument. Why is that so important? Because when did God create Adam? Before the curse of mankind in the sin. And so the opposite is actually the truth. It's not that the idea of a wife submitting to her husband and a husband providing loving leadership and kind leadership, it's not that it's the result of the curse, just the opposite. That's a return to the time before the curse. That's a return to just a little piece of Eden. 
It's an opportunity to experience a little of the Garden of Eden, even in the midst of a sinful world. And by going back to creation, Paul's reminding the reader that Eve's creation is completely unique. She came from Adam, from his rib. Genesis 2, 21 through 23 tells us this. And with a very specific purpose. The purpose was to be his helper. Can you imagine how much confusion there would be today if Adam and Eve had been created at exactly the same time and then later on God said, but here are the roles for marriage. That would have created confusion. God eliminated that confusion by creating Adam, very clearly the head, and letting some time pass, and then making Eve and using Adam's body from which to make Eve. And now the one man and the one woman were to bind their lives together in a lifetime of one flesh union. So now the question remains, how does Adam's prior creation, the divine order, how does that show that women should not teach men in the church? Well, there's a couple of facts we could consider. First of all, in both verses 13 and 14, Adam is the dominant figure in the topic. And in some way then, Adam and Eve are parallel to trends with men and women in the Ephesian church. If they're not parallel, then verses 13 and 14 are just dropped in for no reason and they make no sense. God's creation order in Genesis happens in the Garden of Eden. What was the Garden of Eden? If you asked Adam and Eve, what is the Garden of Eden? They would say, well, I don't know. We just call it home. That's where we live. That's our home. And so it's very specific to the created order for marriage and for the family. And so God intended male authority in the home. That's absolutely clear. Why would he contradict that now in the church? That would make no sense. That would mean that it was possible for a woman pastor to stand up and preach authoritatively and then go home and have to submit to her husband. That would make no sense whatsoever. In fact, the idea of the home and family relationships are vitally connected to the idea of the people of God in relationship with God in Scripture. How are the home and God created or or connected here? Well, God uses the home and its relationships to reveal and even describe himself. Did you know that? John 14, 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You notice who the head of the home in heaven is. It is the Father. Ephesians five twenty five: Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, the analogy of the home. Even more closely, the book of Revelation links the home and the church. Three times the church is called the bride of the Lamb of God, Jesus as the bridegroom. So God's design of the home, absolutely it must be timeless. It must be founded in creation because it's the reflection of his relationship to all who would place their faith in Christ. The home and the church go together. The home is never changing in its design. Nobody has ever improved on that design. People have tried, but they've never improved on this design, on its purposes. And the fact that Paul ties his teaching on the principles of order in the church to the timeless and universal principles of the home, it joins these two together as irrevocable and as unchanging. And so it really doesn't leave us any room to guess that these imperatives, these commands given in the first century were for just that time or place alone. Instead, he ties these to deeply held, long, ancient theological underpinnings. And so if we were to kind of summarize this, 
Paul's basic argument is that in the church, as in the home, God created men for spiritual leadership and women for the all-important role of helper and support. These roles are not the result of the fall of mankind. They're actually an attempt to go before the fall, to return to Eden. So reason number one for verses 11 and 12, the created order is a divine design. Reason number two is a little more complex. In verse 14, we'll label this reason disobedience leads to deception disobedience leads to deception honestly i could talk about this for hours we'll try to just keep this honed down but this is a clear principle and it's illustrated here and adam was not deceived verse 14 but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor now the historic interpretations of this verse are lengthy but we could put them into three basic camps There's a lot of nuances in each of these, but I think these three will accurately represent the majority of views. Here's view number one about verse 14. I've already mentioned this slightly, but it's an important view. The nature of women in general is more open to deception. I did not write that, just so you know. The view is the nature of women in general is more open to deception. That men and women are equal before God, but they're of a different nature, and so they're more open to deception. This doesn't hold water for so many different reasons, but how about this one? If women at their core are more open to deception, then it's not just that they shouldn't teach men. They shouldn't teach anybody. They shouldn't teach other women. They shouldn't teach the children. And yet Paul elsewhere makes certain women are to be involved vitally in the, in the role of teaching. And by the way, this doesn't account for the broad generalization. Uh, this broad generalization doesn't account for the fact that for 2,000 years of church history, which gender has dominated faithful attendance in the church? It's always been the women, every time. So view number one, the nature of women in general is more open to deception. We'll scrap that one. View number two, Eve was inadequately knowledgeable of God's will. She had inadequate knowledge of God's will. And what's this based on? This is actually even more popular view. The, the, The idea is this. Eve was not present when God gave the command to Adam regarding not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She was created after that. And so she received her knowledge of God secondhand and therefore was inadequately prepared for this moment of temptation. I actually think there's some applicational merits to that idea that anytime we're distanced from the word of God by any means whatsoever, that puts us in danger of uh, being at a disadvantage spiritually, and, and we understand that, but that's a case of the right application from the wrong text. What's wrong with that view? First of all, how many commands did Adam and Eve have to memorize? One. That was it. So I think Adam probably could have passed that on to her. Now, she did actually alter God's word when she repeated the command to not eat of the tree, she added, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that, but that's on her. That's just her adding to it. But the parallel here, why is this theory so, so well believed? The theory here is that the women of Ephesus were uneducated. And they weren't able to fully discern the word of God because they couldn't read or they couldn't write or they were 
they were uh, less than competent in the word. We talked about this in my introductory message to this series, that that's a complete myth. Yes, the women in Ephesus and in the Roman Empire weren't highly educated, but what I proved to you was that that means they didn't go to graduate school, basically. But they were still educated. It's just that most education of women didn't happen in a school setting. It happened in homes. But the women had to be educated. They were running their homes. In other words, this view says that since women didn't know the word of God as well as men, at least in Ephesus, that they're more prone to deception and so they shouldn't teach. And that's now used as an excuse to say that verses 11 and 12 are not for today. Why? Because women are educated today. What's the obvious reason that this doesn't hold water? Who were the false teachers in the Ephesian church? They were men. They were men. Paul even makes an example of two of them. Chapter 1, verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And every time he says, I charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, that is a masculine pronoun. Those are men. So, If Paul's going to say anybody ought not to be teaching if they're going to deceive because they're not well-versed in the word of God, he would logically say the men because they're the ones doing it. So we would scrap view number two. View number three, deception happens when roles are exchanged. Deception happens when roles are exchanged. God intended different roles for each, and when a woman steps outside her God-given role, she's in a place of spiritual weakness due to disobedience, and, and she's prone then to deception. Can I put it this way? Anytime any of us purposefully step outside of God's will, we are prone to deception. And now we begin, we have, we have decided that I know better than God's word. I know better than what he has already declared in his revelation. And now we're being deceived simply because we stepped outside the boundaries God already has given us. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Eve was deceived, taking the forbidden fruit without consulting her husband, Adam. Now, many people have said, man, this verse really slams Eve. And Adam was not deceived. No, that's not slamming Eve. That's slamming Adam. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned on purpose. In fact, greater blame is placed on him. Remember, this wasn't Adam walking around not knowing what was going on. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. In fact, God lays at the feet of Adam the responsibility for all sin entering into the world. Romans 5 is very clear about this. Eve took the place of leader And Adam took the place of follower. And what happened? Deception, sin, and spiritual disaster that we're still feeling today. One of the leading scholars on this issue, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, he wrote, The appeal to Genesis 3 serves as a reminder of what happens when God's ordained pattern is undermined. So we would take view number three, that deception happens when roles are exchanged. Because now you're saying, I know better than God, therefore you're proving you have no spiritual discernment. And so in the home, we should be about restoring the pre-fall divine order by making men responsible to lead. 
And in the church, we should be about the business of making the, restoring the pre-fall order by making men responsible for the spiritual teaching to restore what was lost when Adam and Eve switched roles. You see, when a woman assumes leadership in the home and her husband does not, she's prone to deception. And he is also, by the way. And when women assume leadership over men in the church, now the whole church is prone to deception. There's no such thing as a church run by women with a core of godly, mature members. That doesn't exist. Why is this the case? Because in the midst of rebellious sin, you can't possibly be spiritually discerning because by definition, you're not what? Walking in the spirit. So you can't discern anything. Eve took leadership that was not hers to take and Adam abdicated his leadership by his passivity, by his inaction. That's the interpretation. Now, what are the applications? 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I'd like to spend the rest of our time together on the training in righteousness part. Because just understanding those concepts, I mean, you can walk out of here and go, okay, I have the right interpretation now. I understand this text. Okay, yippee. What do I do with that? I want you to intentionally soak and apply these truths. And so what I'd like to do is kind of do the three R's of staying true to God's divine order, God's created order. The three R's of staying true to God's created order. The first R, reinforce the church's faithfulness. Reinforce the church's faithfulness. Now, we haven't mentioned them yet, but you recall who the real enemy is behind the reversal of God's created order, the deception of Eve? That enemy was Satan. It's important to keep in mind that Satan initiated that attempted reversal of God's created order because it has, from his perspective, eternal ramifications. He was successful in deceiving Eve, and what's happened? Everybody has died in all of history because of that. Satan hates the gospel. He hates the Christ of the gospel, and he hates all who follow Christ. One of the features of the biblical gospel is that true regeneration, true salvation radically alters the life of the person who's saved. And so Satan has introduced this role reversal, this jab at God's intended design, because one of the major effects of this role reversal, get this, is that it now neutralizes the effectiveness of the church. It neutralizes the church's ability to show we're different because of what we believe. It's God's design that men are the instruments used by God to lead and shepherd the church. In fact, there's a a technical designation, a title in the Bible for someone who is called to lead the Lord's people and to shepherd them spiritually. Moses was given this title. Shemaiah, the prophet in 1 Kings 12, was called this. Many unnamed prophets in the Old Testament were called this title. Elijah was called this. Elisha was called this. King David was called this. The Apostle Paul called Timothy this in 1 Timothy 6. And every person who stands to teach the people of God in the church has been called this. In, first, in 2 Timothy 3, what is that title? It is the man of God. That's the title. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
And yes, 2 Timothy 3.16 gives us our great statement on the inspiration of Scripture, but more, the purpose is to tell the man of God what he is to do, and that is to preach the word. That the man of God teaches the Scripture, he reproves from Scripture, he corrects from the Scripture, and he trains for righteousness from the Scripture. And the women of the church are the backbone that God has used to support the preached word of God to do the countless wonderful tasks of teaching one another, teaching the children, caring for the body of Christ in ways that are seen, ways that are unseen. But what happens when the roles are reversed? Well, if the roles are reversed in the home, then in the view of the world, the gospel hasn't made any difference. If roles are reversed in the church, the church now just becomes nothing more than a spiritualized reflection of standards set by whom? By unbelievers. You remember how different Israel was to be? That's why they have a law? Well, the church is to be different. Peter calls us aliens and strangers in a foreign land. If roles are reversed in the home and in the church, then this is a living denial of the authority of Scripture. And we may as well just say aloud, we believe in Jesus, we just don't believe all of his commands. If you're a child, try telling that to your parents. We believe in you, but we just aren't going to obey. And now the gospel has been drained of its power because in the eyes of a watching world, the gospel didn't really make much of a difference. Ladies, if I could encourage you, merely by living a life of contented joy within the borders of God's design, the unbeliever sees and marvels at the fact that you are completely different than the world. And you don't have all the things that the world says should make you happy. You don't have the things like a rebellious, harsh spirit that the world values. You don't have the tearing off of the so-called shackles of the traditional family. You don't have to spend your life fighting for rights and privileges because you know exactly where you belong. I belong in the will of God. And listen, to the lost person who is searching in vain for peace and joy and all these ungodly things, then she sees your peace, your contentment, your joy being lived out that's completely foreign to her. What does this do? It leads to gospel conversations. I heard an account of this just this past week of one woman asking another, you seem so peaceful and joyful. What do you have that I'm not understanding? That's an open door. That's like shooting fish in a barrel, as they say in Texas. Just explain the gospel. But the opposite is true. Every time you step outside God's intended design, you become a willing partner with Satan. Satan hates God with every fiber of his being. He hates the gospel because it's through the gospel that the kingdom of Satan is being slowly decimated over time. Over the years, I've heard from many women feeling like they're somehow inadequate for kingdom work or inadequate for the gospel because they're spending their time and their efforts loving their husbands, raising their children in the admonition of the Lord, or maybe they're feeling like they're never going to do anything great or mighty or impressive for the Lord. Could I encourage you? You have no idea how the collective efforts of women of a local church who are living in a way that's pleasing to Christ, you have no idea what a tidal wave that is of faithfulness. It is noticed. I have heard this firsthand from people who visit our church and they say, you guys are really into the traditional family. And I always say, no, we're into the biblical family. And it makes a difference. This is a witness to a watching world that the, the, the gospel radically changes people. 
And so the first R, reinforce the church's faithfulness. The second R, we'll call this one, refine the pursuit of godly womanhood. Refine the pursuit of godly womanhood. Now, I want to get as intensely practical as we can here because at some point, it's time to put away girlish habits and to intentionally grow into a well-honed and effective woman of God. So how do you do that? Let me, define, let me divide these pursuits rather into two categories, internal pursuits and external pursuits. Internal pursuits, I'll give you three of them. How you feed your heart and your mind. The first internal pursuit, practice quiet contentment. Practice quiet contentment. Contentment is a discipline. It's achieved over time. It's achieved with practice. It is achieved with desire. Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It is learned. It is discontentment that will lead to the outbreak of sin in your life. Because a discontented believer begins to look to all the idols of the heart that may provide some sort of relief or some sort of fake contentment. So what does it mean? What does this mean to, to practice quiet contentment? It's all the things we say all the time. It means immersing yourself in the word of God. It not, well, I read my chapter for the week. No, I read my chapter for the hour. I read my book for the day. It is immersing yourself in the word. It's immersing yourself in the gospel. The, the most content Christians know the gospel the best because they're content in Christ. It means cultivating a truly rich and aggressive prayer life. Maybe a prayer journal will help you. Maybe a set-aside time. Maybe the, the collection of Puritan prayers, the Valley of Vision, maybe that will help you. Maybe making lists of people to pray for. Whatever it takes, at some point, it is time to say, I've had enough of playing Christian, I need to be a praying Christian. It means consciously making a huge effort to spiritually rise above disappointments, rise above loss, rise above your own failures, rise above others' failures. And wow, this has a huge impact on those around you, by the way. Your quiet contentment radically helps others. In the very same chapter, Paul says something familiar to us. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we usually stop right there, but often we forget what the very next verse is. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness is a word that means being willing to yield, that you give in to whatever happens. Let your reasonableness be known. How do you express that? God is sovereign and I am at peace. That's reasonableness. We call that contentment. There's a second internal pursuit. Immerse yourself in Philippians 4.8. Immerse yourself in Philippians 4.8. Again, we return to this wonderful chapter. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Have you ever eaten something so good that you already know after your second bite, I'm going to eat this 20 more times in my lifetime easily? That's Philippians 4.8. You take one bite of this and you say, this is filet mignon for the soul. Why is this so important? And I won't go through the details. You can do, do your own word study on these specific things to think about, that which is true, honorable, and just, and so forth. But the main point is that Paul's command to think on these things is an act of the will on your part. 
In fact, the Greek word given for this command is rooted in the idea of speaking. And so we could reasonably say, finally, brothers, whether it was true, whether it was honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of, these, of, worthy of praise, tell yourself these things. Tell yourself these things. You tell yourself the truth. Listen, your thoughts will make or break your Christian life. What do thoughts and toddlers have in common? They both have to be bent to your will. And they'll continue to rebel against you. They'll continue to run away. Well, you have to grab a hold of them and control them. I have noticed, by the way, that professing believers who don't work at telling themselves the truth tend to also not tell other people the truth. A lie is a protection of an idol. That idol is that, uh uh-oh, I might be found out. That's indicative of not telling yourself the truth. That's another topic for another day. One more internal pursuit. Purposefully look to eternity. Purposefully look to eternity. Your reward in heaven should be important to you. It should drive you. It should motivate you. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and 14 and 15, rather, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, foundation is Christ, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. I've often thought it'd be great about halfway through life for the Lord to, to visit me and say, just letting you know, here's your evaluation so far. But he has. We have the word of God. You compare your life to it every day. What an antidote against perpetual disappointment and discontentment and eternal perspective is. And it does take practice. But looking continually to what the Bible says about your heavenly future, this gives you a right perspective on everything. Again, in Philippians, what does Paul say? To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. It's a win-win. Now, without the internal pursuits, then the external pursuits, so they're just going to be chores. They won't be placed in their proper context of loving Christ, of adoring your Savior and desiring the God that we, He would be glorified. So let's do some external pursuits. And I just want to be intensely practical if we can. The first one is live an intentional and organized life. Live an intentional and organized life. You say, well, you're getting over into this whole life coaching thing. No, Paul reminds us, Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of what? The time, because the days are evil. The question is very simple. What am I doing today? What am I doing this week? That are the very most important things. Do you know what your biggest priorities in life are? And are you acting on those things? Hey, do you have them planned? My dear wife has simply divided her life into major categories and she tracks every single day in writing how she has fulfilled those categories. It's that simple. Live an intentional and organized life. Here's a second external pursuit and I'm speaking specifically to married women in this moment. If you're married, this is going to sound obvious, remember to love your husband. Remember to love your husband. Now, why would I say that? I've done a little bit of marriage counseling and what I've noticed is that if you've been married for a long time, sometimes husbands can kind of become part of the scenery. That you just walk in the house and he's just the guy who's there, you know, and, and I understand that. But Titus 2.4 reminds wives to love their husbands. 
And your love isn't just for the sake of your marriage. It serves to motivate him, to give him courage, to soften his heart, to lift his low spirits to a place of encouragement. The opposite is also true. When the husband deals with a contentious wife, it drains him of motivation, drains him of effectiveness, and now just makes life miserable. And one more external pursuit, again, specific to our married ladies. If you're married, remember to listen to your husband. Remember to listen to your husband. If you treat your husband as if he has nothing to offer to your spiritual life, that's a waste of a glorious resource. Why? Because he sees your life more accurately than anybody else does. Who would you rather have working on your car? The guy who knows everything about it or somebody that you go on an online chat with and try to describe it to? It's a position of great pride and sinfulness in which one spouse can't speak into the life of the other. What's the basic point here? Internal pursuits, external pursuits. The point is don't coast. Don't coast. Pursue Christ. Pursue your life with him. How are you growing this week? What are your goals this month? What are your your plans for the year to grow? What are you going to read? What are you going to do differently? The, The one sin that seems to keep cropping up over and over again. What are you going to do to just nail that thing to the ground this year? What are you going to do? Live with intentionality and purpose and hard work and what joy and contentment can be found simply by making it your life's ambition to pursue the Lord within the confines of his divine design. The first R, reinforce the church's faithfulness. The second R, refine the pursuit of godly womanhood. The third R, rally together for great things. Rally together for great things. Again, still in the divine order. Now, this is speaking primarily to married women at first because this is we're, we're concerned for the divine order which began first in the home. But these applications have definite usefulness to those who aren't currently married in terms of your kingdom efforts. 1 Corinthians 7.34 says that the unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. That's not a negative anxiety. That's, that's the idea of I'm thinking continually about kingdom things and she can devote herself fully to Christ with Fewer divisions in her attention. But what do I mean to rally together for great things? Going back to the created order in which Adam was created by God and Eve was created as his his glorious helper, this really gets us away from the mundane idea of a marriage just being the union of two people who are essentially living two parallel but separate lives. That's not marriage. Now, What we're talking about right now necessarily involves both husbands and wives thinking about this together. And in fact, men, I want to address you for a moment because you're you're a vital part of this. God created you to achieve. He created you to dream. He created you to pursue. He created you to look at something that has nothing and to put something there after having pictured something there. He created you to achieve, to tackle huge challenges. He made you to do things for his glory that go far beyond just bringing home a paycheck. That's a godly pursuit, absolutely, but you're made for more than that. You're better than that. You're made in the image of God. But God made you to look beyond your horizons. This is part of being made in his image. And so you, as a man, you can identify your major callings, your your missions in life, which contribute to the outworking of Christ's kingdom, or maybe they add value to the world, add value to those around you, those things which challenge and motivate you. 
And then you enlist your wife to be your chief operating officer to help you make those things happen. The happiest Christian marriages I've ever seen always involve some level of partnership. And now, ladies, you being all in with your role as second in command, this is a gold mine of a rich partnership. And you can partner with your husband very easily in two ways. The first one is free him up. Free him up to pursue the things God would have him do by taking care of things for him and for your family. And the second easy way is to come alongside him to partner in what he's doing, to be a sounding board, to work alongside him in countless ways. Instead of living completely separate and compartmentalized lives from each other, be in partnership in certain things. And this may feel challenging at first, but make his interests your interests. That thrills a man when a wife will do that. That thrills a man. And listen, ladies... Think about this for a moment. Think about the way generally men and women are made and how this works together. Generally speaking, men are made to focus on how many things at once? One, right? See all the ladies, their finger went up right there. You know this. Generally speaking, how many things can women focus on? Like a million all at once. It's amazing. I have seen women texting, answering an email, and having a meaningful, fully focused conversation all at the same time. How is that possible? I I mean, I can't scramble eggs and have a conversation at the same time. My whole family knows if dad is cooking, don't talk to him. They're trying to focus. But do you see the beauty of that complementary relationship? A man focuses on the one thing that he's supposed to be doing at that moment and his wife takes care of all the multiple things that are happening around him to do what? To keep him focused. To keep him focused. I lost track of the number of times when I was in seminary that my wife said, what do you need to do? And I would tell her, I need to study for eight hours. Then she would ask the second question, what do I need to do to make that happen? I had that question a thousand times. Why do you think 1 Timothy 3 gives qualifications of deacons, servants in the church, immediately followed by qualifications of their wives? Because the assumption is you'll work better together. By the way, I want to be sensitive to this. I know that you may be in a stage of life where you're not able to physically do much. You're not able to be as effective as you would like for one reason or another. But can I say this? You can pray for great things and you can... Use words to encourage others. Some of the greatest encouragement I receive in the gospel ministry, and many of you as well, are blessed by the prayers and the encouraging words and cards and notes. How precious that is. There was a precious woman in our church who told me on multiple, multiple occasions with her English accent, I don't feel I do very much. Of course, our beloved Jane Mulligan, and when she went home to be with the Lord, I missed every Sunday, her just saying, thank you for the word. I missed that. I can still picture where she's sitting. What a treasure you ladies are. And by the way, what about a woman who's not married? What a treasure to the church you are. You bless everybody. Yesterday at Erin DeVries Memorial, she had never married. And it took hours for the testimonials of how she had blessed so many people around her. What a treasure to the church you are. 
Reinforce the church's faithfulness. Refine the pursuit of godly womanhood. Rally together for great things. And listen, this truth about God's divine created order, this is a, there's a broader general truth also. Listen carefully. Only by walking in God's will and God's commands and God's ways can true happiness and joy be found. Psalm 119, verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have to say this. I am compelled by not only the word of God, by my calling in the ministry and by the spirit of God, but we have to say this. If you found yourself hearing this message and resisting and even becoming angry at the idea of a male-led church and a husband-led home, if these so offend your sensibilities that you're insulted or, or even hurt, it may be that you don't want to honor the commands of Christ because you don't belong to him. Jesus said that those who love him obey him. We can't obey perfectly, obviously, because we're still trapped in sinful bodies with a sin nature. But we do, as Christians, possess an undying loyalty to him which expresses itself in the yearning to be obedient out of love. Listen, if you find yourself in this category of feeling offended or insulted at the male leadership of the home, the male leadership of the church, could I remind you by way of warning that this is indicative of an unregenerate heart, a heart that does not belong to Christ. You cannot say, I am a Christian, I just don't like all the commands in the Bible. And so I would urge you to do the only thing that you can do, and that is to repent. This is not about roles. This is not about what husbands do. This is not about wives do. This is about where you're going to end up. The other stuff will sort itself out once you become a Christian. You'll come back and listen to this sermon, and you'll agree with me, because you'll be in Christ. Ask God to forgive you for the arrogance and pride of thinking you know better than the divine created order. Did you know this? Did you know that if you're not in Christ, God commands you to come to saving faith. He commands you to come to Christ, to submit to him in all things and to humble yourself. He doesn't just issue a a, a nice little warm invitation. He gives an imperative, a command. 1 John 3, 23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so, as his spokesman at this moment, I am commanding you to come to faith in Christ. If you have resisted, obey and come to Christ. And then God makes a wonderful promise to you. Speaking of family, John 1.12, But to him, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to be part of God's household to be part of the church, home and church put together. If that's you, if you know in your heart you've been rebelling, right after this service in room 160, straight out that way, you need to come and you need to meet with our counselors and you need to see that Christ is sufficient. I think we have something going on in 160, don't we? Meet outside the stairs. How about that? But you need to come to Christ. Find somebody. Grab one of our members and say, help me come to Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, this is not ultimately about women and about men. This is about, do we love Christ and do we obey him? Lord, for a man or a woman or a young boy or girl that still believes they know better, I pray that the Spirit of God would 
come even at this moment to change their heart, to regenerate them, to turn them to the glorious gospel. And then they would find great joy, not just in fulfilling roles, that's just, a, that's just an outworking, but they would find great joy in the Savior himself, the creator who made us to operate in a certain way that is pleasing to him and brings contentment and joy to us. I pray for any here, any listening online who do not know Christ, may this be the day. May they look back on this day as the day that they came into the kingdom of our dear Savior. And for all who are here, who are still working through some of these issues, I pray that the word of God would be a, a gentle reminder and a salve on, on wounds of even arrogance and pride. Lord, help us to submit to you, to love you. And then, Lord, I do pray for our church. I pray that you would continue to raise up men of God, not only for the benefit of our church, but I pray you would raise up men that we could send out to other local bodies, that we would be ascending church, Lord, that would bless your body in other places as well. We would take this as a great, wonderful favor if you would do this in our midst. Bless us, Lord, as we attempt to obey you. Give us the strength and the power and the joy that the obedience to Christ brings. We pray in his name, amen.